Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Everything you do, you monitor how you look, how you dress, how you talk, how you act. Do they see me? What do they think of me? That's a clip from Paris is Burning, a documentary by Jenny Livingston about the ball culture in New York City during the 1980s. You also heard a little bit of Paris is Burning at the very top of the episode. Now, throughout the film, questions of gender come up again and again, and gender was a central question in queer, a graphic history. A Judith Butler, who's credited with creating queer theory, is one of the book's central figures in the gender discussion. In this clip from an interview Butler did for Big Think, she talks about the performative nature of gender. Here's Judith Butler. It's one thing to say that gender is performed, and that's a little different from saying gender is performative. When we say gender is performed, we usually mean that we've taken on a role, we're acting in some way. Um, and that our acting or our role-playing is crucial to the gender that we are and the gender that we present to the world. To say that gender is performative is a little different because for something to be performative means that it produces a series of effects. We act and walk and speak and talk in ways that mm, consolidate an impression of being a man or being a woman. You know, I was walking down the street in Berkeley when I first arrived several years ago, and a young woman who was, I think, in high school leaned out of her window and she yelled, are you a lesbian? And, <laughs> and she was looking to harass me. Or maybe she was just freaked out or she thought I looked like I probably was one and wanted to know. But instead I just turned around and I said, yes, I am. And that really shocked her. We act as if that being of a man or that being of a woman is actually an internal reality or something that's simply true about us, a fact about us. Actually, it's a phenomenon that's being produced all the time and reproduced all the time. So to say gender is performative is to say that nobody really is a gender from the start. I know it's controversial, but that's my claim. There's a real question for me about how such gender norms get established and policed, and what the best way is to disrupt them and to overcome the police function. It's my view that uh, gender is, a, is, is culturally formed, but it's also a domain of agency or freedom. It's most important to resist the violence that is imposed by ideal gender norms, especially against those who are gender different, who are non-conforming in their, in their gender presentation. 
In another speech, Butler explores the idea of the violence of gender norms. And in a very powerful story, she shows us why these blindly accepted norms can be deadly and why we have to fight so hard against them. There's a story um, that came out around, uh, I don't know, eight years ago of a young man who lived in Maine and he walked down the street of his small town where he had lived his entire life. And he walks uh, with what we call a swish, a kind of uh, his hips move back and forth in a feminine way. And as he grew older, 14, 15, 16, that swish, that walk became more pronounced, okay? And it was more dramatically feminine. And he started to be harassed by the boys in the town. And soon two or three boys uh, stopped his walk. And they fought with him. And they ended up throwing him over a bridge. And they killed him. Okay. So then we have to ask, why uh, would someone be killed for the way they walk? Well, why would that walk be so upsetting to those other boys? that they would feel that they must negate this person, they must expunge the trace of this person, they must stop that walk no matter what. They must, uh, they must uh, 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 eradicate the possibility of that person ever walking again. Uh, it seems to me uh, that uh, we are talking about uh, an extremely deep uh, panic or fear, an anxiety that pertains to gender norms. And uh, if someone says, uh, you must comply with uh, the norm of masculinity, otherwise uh, you will die, or I kill you now because you do not comply, then uh, we have to uh, start to question um, what the relation is between uh, complying with gender and coercion. I was born black and a woman. I am trying to become the strongest person I can become, to live the life I have been given and to help affect change toward a livable future for this earth and for my children. As a black, lesbian, feminist, socialist, poet, mother of two, including one boy and member of an interracial couple, I usually find myself part of some group in which the majority defines me as deviant, difficult, inferior, or just plain wrong. From my membership in all of these groups, I have learned that oppression and the intolerance of difference come in all shapes and sizes and colors and sexualities, and that among those of us who share the goals of liberation and a workable future for our children, there can be no hierarchies of oppression. I have learned that sexism, a belief in the inherent superiority of one sex over all others and thereby its right to dominance, and heterosexism, a belief in the inherent superiority of one pattern of loving over all others and thereby its right to dominance, both arise from the same source as racism, a belief in the inherent superiority of one race over all others and thereby its right to dominance. Oh, says a voice from the black community, but being black is normal. Well, I and many black people of my age can remember grimly the days when it didn't used to be. I simply do not believe that one aspect of myself can possibly profit from the oppression of another part of my identity. I know that my people cannot possibly profit from the oppression of any other group which seeks the right to peaceful existence. Rather, 
we diminish ourselves by denying to others what we have shed blood to obtain for our children. And those children need to learn that they do not have to become like each other in order to work together for a future they will all share. That was a reading of Audre Lorde's There Is No Hierarchy of Oppressions, read by Lauren Lyons. Now, Lorde is one of queer theory's prominent thinkers, particularly in how queerness, race, and gender interact. Now, that's a subject that's central to both our discussions here on Bearded Fruit and in queer theory, the idea of intersectionality. Now, as we said before, queer theory rejects the idea that identities are fixed, and intersectionality deepens that thought. It's the idea that each of us lives a variety of identities. I, for example, am male, gay, white, middle class, and abled. And I don't live any of those identities without impacting or touching on one of the others. And each of us lives a very specific combination of identities, and we experience them and the oppressions that come with them uniquely. Intersectionality says we're not one thing all of the time, and we must be careful that we aren't sacrificing or marginalizing one identity while inhabiting another. Now, the term intersectionality was coined by activist and scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, and in this speech given at the Omega Women's Leadership Center, Crenshaw discusses intersectionality. So what is intersectional feminism and why is it important? Well, we've been talking about women and power um, against the backdrop of women's political participation. And there's so much excitement now um, that we have to really think about what do we know about women and political participation um, historically? What are some of the lessons that we might learn from it? Well, let's think a minute about the struggle for women's political power right here in the United States. Um, in about 15, 20 years, we're going to celebrate the centennial of women's right to vote. And knowing as I do how we in America like to celebrate things like anything that happened here was the greatest thing that ever happened in the world, <laughs> I can imagine how excited everybody's gonna be. But here's the question. When do I, as an African-American woman, get to celebrate my entry into the political community? In reality, I've got to wait another 40 years to celebrate because the situation was that giving blacks to vote did not empower blacks who were women. And giving women the right to vote did not empower women who were black. So this, quite simply, is what I call structural intersectionality, the collision of two overlapping dynamics of oppression. Patriarchy reared its head during the debate over the 15th Amendment. It was the Negro's hour, they said, right? So the Negro's hour apparently meant that it was not Negro women's hour, it was Negro men's hour. Well, what happened when the women's hour came to vote some 30 years later? By that time, blacks had been so thoroughly disenfranchised that black women won nothing when women won the right to vote. Now, you're not going to read this story in our history books, and this certainly isn't part of our political culture. We celebrate women's enfranchisement and the women who led the struggle as though it's an unabashed victory for women. The fact that a whole lot of women were left at the station falls from our consciousness, as does the racial strategy that the suffragettes followed 
to win the vote for women. In fact, one of the main arguments for women's suffrage was that it would help shore up white supremacy. Women, it was argued, would be the helpmates to maintain the American way of life against lower order citizens and all these immigrants. Adding millions of white women voters to the rolls would ensure that democracy would survive. It was not an accidental argument, nor an isolated one. Now, I don't want this to be a one-sided critique, um, because African-American men weren't any better on the question of whether black women should get the right to vote. Uh, his basic sense was that they were better off left disenfranchised with friends like these. Need I say more? So what's the moral of this story? Why is this important? I mean, you might say, come on, um, this is ancient history. What does it have to do with contemporary politics? Well, let's ask a couple questions. What might have happened had enfranchisement truly been universal? If women's power wasn't seen and celebrated as white women's power, if enfranchising the slaves had not been seen as enfranchising the men, if feminism had been seen early on as incorporating all women, black and immigrant, native and Asian, if anti-racism had been seen as incorporating all people of color, men as well as women, what might have happened and where would our culture be now? if the fight against patriarchy and the fight against white supremacy had not become alien to each other, and if the women who were subject to both had been centered rather than marginalized in these struggles. We can barely imagine how political life might be different in the here and now. So what does intersectionality look like in practice? Well, Crenshaw has some ideas, and this is from the same speech given at the Omega Women's Leadership Center. So what do we do? I don't think we have to have huge, big solutions. There are some things that we can do. One thing is we can always train ourselves to ask the other question. I see the sexism in this, but do I see the racism in it? I see the homophobia in this, but do I see the classism in it? Just telling ourselves that we need to ask additional questions sometimes opens up possibilities that we had never seen. What we have to be prepared to do is to take the history that we know about and repudiate that history and move to a different awareness, a different politics, a different consciousness about women. We can celebrate some of our victories, but it's important for us to learn. It's important for us to move away from images of women's rights that look exclusive and exclusionary and to different ideas about how inclusion is supposed to look. Now, at the end of the day, I want to suggest that we fantasize. And as long as we're fantasizing about boys not learning the message of absorbing uh, violence, why not wish for a world where children don't learn that racial inclusion, exclusion, is normative and okay? Where Americans don't learn that their security is primary above all? 
where atrocities against civilians all over the world done in the name of our way of life is acceptable. As long as we are imagining and fantasizing about a female president, why not fantasize about a truly intersectional feminist politics? As long as we're imagining a world without war, why don't we imagine a world without prisons? As long as we are attacking the military-industrial complex, its drain on our resources, its play on our fears, its endless demand for human lives, why don't we attack the prison industrial complex, which depletes our resources, feeds on our fears, and devours lives in the very same way? It's only by taking intersectionality seriously as a prism as an ethic, as a way of reading, as a way of interpreting, as a way of imagining, can we make those hopes about how women coming to power will equate peace? Only through incorporating intersectionality can we really realize the hope that seems to emanate from all of us. Thank you very much. I always had hopes of being a big star. And then I look, as you get older, you, you aim a little lower. And I, you say, well, yeah, you still might make an impression. Everybody wants to leave something behind them, some impression, some mark upon the world. And then you think, you left a mark on the world. If you just get through it. and a few people remember your name. Then you left them all. You don't have to bend the whole world. I think it's better to just enjoy it. Pay your dues and enjoy it. If you shoot an arrow and it goes real high, Array for you. Queer A Graphic History offers all of us under the big queer umbrella some strong thoughts on how we can just get through it, as Dorian Corey says at the end of Paris is Burning, with grace and empathy. Queer theory opens our understanding of the world and forces us to consider the oppressiveness, the validity, and the essentialism of our categories and assumptions. Through the questions of queer theory and the questions that queer a graphic history lay out for us, we can navigate the world with more respect for all identities and experiences. And we can even begin to see how those categories and labels are most often nothing but illusion. And that's it for our very first The Queer Read. As I said at the beginning of the episode, there's a lot more in queer a graphic history beyond uh, gender and its performative nature and intersectionality. So if you didn't pick up the book, go grab it. There's so much more to learn and explore about uh, queer theory. 
And if you want to discuss queer a graphic history further, we're going to be holding our very first live online Google Hangout on Wednesday, March 1st at 7 p.m. Eastern. So check the website for further details. If you read the book and want to talk about it or just want to hear a bunch of us gab about it, please join us there. We're going to be looking forward to talking to you. And it's time to grab your queer read for March. It's Stuck Rubber Baby by Howard Cruz. So we're going to be sticking with graphic novels, but this time we'll be digging into the powerful story of one young man's journey to accept his homosexuality during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Now, Stuck Rubber Baby is one of my favorite books, and it's a smart and emotionally sensitive exploration of race, sexuality, and how we form community. So go grab your copy ordered from Amazon, Stuck Rubber Baby by Howard Cruz. I know you're going to love it. And we have a very special uh, thing for the Queer Read episode in March. We're going to actually have an interview with Howard Cruz for our Queer Read episode. And I'm very, very excited to talk to him about the book. So as always... Thanks, and we'll see you next month for the Queer Read, or we'll see you on March 1st for our Google Hangout about queer, a graphic history. Thanks. You've been listening to Bearded Fruit, politics and culture through an intersectional queer lens. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode, head over to our website, beardedfruit.com, to get more info about this week's show and to check out some of our other web features, like our weekly Ask a Dad advice column or our Fruit Stands section, which gives you ways to bring the Bearded Fruit conversation into your community. You can also connect with us on Facebook at Bearded Fruit and on Twitter at Bearded Fruit Pod. And if you have some feedback on this week's episode, or questions to ask us, or just want to share an idea for an upcoming episode, give us a call at 860-785-0633. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud. And as always, thanks for listening.